Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And first things first, this is part two of our conversation about bisexuality and more specifically bisexual erasure in pop culture and society at large. So in our last episode, we talked a lot about the history uh, of bisexuality, sort of how the concept of what bisexuality is evolved, and also the history of advocacy and erasure. And a lot of what kicked off the erasure conversation was not only the wonderful listener letters that we have received asking that we discuss this issue, but also some articles that we read that focused on how 2014 was a gangbusters year. For bisexual erasure, not for actually portraying bisexual people in a great light. Yeah. And before we get further into our conversation, Caroline, could I perhaps offer a definition of bisexuality from bisexual activist Robin Oaks? Please. Just to give us a little bit of framework to work with, because a lot of people just assume, okay, bisexual just means you're attracted to both men and women equally all the time. 50-50, you're three on the Kinsey scale, right in the middle. Nah, not so simple. So Oaks famously defined it as her, quote, potential to be attracted romantically and or sexually to people of more than one sex and or gender, not necessarily at the same time, not necessarily in the same way and not necessarily to the same degree. So just a little something to keep in mind as we talk about bisexuality in pop culture and later on about this idea of fluidity. Yeah, sexual fluidity. And we had mentioned a couple of pop culture notes in our first episode, specifically uh, characters that appear on screen like Piper and Orange is the New Black, who's often dismissed as either a former lesbian or just a flat-out straight girl. Um, but there are a lot of other characters that have either... Had their, um, had their bisexuality sort of glossed over and erased, or characters who have done the erasing themselves. Uh, characters like Kurt on Glee, who dismissively said, bisexual's a term that gay guys in high school use when they want to hold hands with girls and feel like a normal person for a change. So it's sort of a one-two punch of, Bisexual erasure and stereotyping. Yeah, whole gay, straight or lying regurgitated over and over and over again. And I feel like that's similarly reflected, at least in my interpretation, of House of Cards, uh, where there is a spoiler alert if you haven't seen all of House of Cards. There is a dun-dun-dun threesome between... Frank Underwood, his wife Claire, and their male security guard, Meacham. Oh, Meacham, would you like to come into the bedroom this (laughs) evening? That is kind of how it goes down. (laughs) And there have been hints throughout House of Cards of Frank Underwood's, I assumed, gay predilections, even though he and Claire, you do see him and Claire have sex well, he, I guess, never mind. It's so true. He's having sex with women all of the time. Why have I been assuming that Frank Underwood is actually gay and not bisexual? Am I, have I been committing bisexual erasure in my own head, Caroline? I assumed he was gay. Is he having sex with lots of women? Well, don't you remember? Uh, uh, Mara, what's her name? Yeah. Kate Mara? But, but then again, it's, it's a little difficult with a character like Frank Underwood not to get like too off the rails here because 
He is willing to do anything and anyone to get what he wants. It's true. He's using sex as a tool. And I think that's been why it's assumed that his sex is not born out of desire, but rather political motive. Right. And power. Because the the one character that they show that he has this like almost boyish affection for is a man, is another man. And so with Claire, it's almost like two power players oh, yeah. doing whatever they can to yeah, get their, ahead. Their sex is, is not loving. It doesn't yeah. seem very loving. So, so yeah, interesting, interesting how potential bisexuality can get glossed over also when just showing how one character is power hungry. Yeah, and the showrunners though speaking to the threesome that the Underwoods have with Meacham, they chalk it up to just quote, whims and desires. Yeah. Just whims and desires. That's all it is. And it's the same kind of thing with Oberyn Martell, who's a uh, the ill-fated character on Game of Thrones. Another spoiler Another, alert. Sorry. <laughs> this yeah. episode is full of spoiler alerts for anyone who is as behind on TV as I usually am. Yeah. Well, so Oberyn Martell's a great character, and he's also... A character that has an insatiable sexual appetite, both for men and for women. And he tells someone in the show that, uh, you know, he, he doesn't want to be limited. He loves everyone. Everyone's attractive. He just wants to be with beautiful people. It doesn't really matter. And basically critics and bisexual advocates have pointed at that character and said, why are you glossing over his bisexuality? He's bisexual. Whereas plenty of other people would say, why are you raising a stink? He's sexually fluid. Isn't that good, too? Well, it seems like it's, again, that um, conflating fluidity with sex drive. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's a guy who wants to have just a ton of sex, which does seem to play into some stereotyping of bisexuals just of just needing a label for their hypersexuality. And another character uh whose bisexuality is sort of <laughs> used for for ill not for good uh, according to Amy Zimmerman over at the Daily Beast is a character named Kate from the movie Dodgeball. So Zimmerman points out that here's this character who makes out with a woman and she's the butt of a ton of lesbian jokes. But then at the end, a spoiler, (laughs) (laughs) reveals herself to be bisexual, thus becoming available to the male protagonist. And, And this is... You hear this a lot when when you're talking about bisexuality and its depiction in the media that essentially uh, lady bisexuals are cool, according to media standards. Yeah. Men, not so much. And British journalist Mark Simpson says it's unquestionable that female bisexuality is today much more socially acceptable than male bisexuality and in fact frequently positively encouraged both by many voyeuristic men and an equally voyeuristic pop culture. It's that whole thing of like, well, but okay, she's still, it's, it's, it's hot when two chicks make out. And plus she's also still available to me as a man. Exactly. You know, bisexual women, they're just really girls who can hang, you know, and make out with each other from time to time when we really want to see it. Um, Now, when it comes to, Representation, just for some numbers, Glad did a tally of uh, shows from 2013 to 2014 and found on broadcast networks, bisexual characters made up 22% of all LGBT characters, and most were women, mm-hmm. not surprisingly. On cable, 
uh, they made up roughly the same, 21% of LGBT characters, and again, mostly women. And that 21%, by the way, is not a huge number. It, that rounds up to 14 yeah. individual characters. So still not a huge not a huge amount. And as we've seen in just naming a couple of, of characters, the depictions that are there aren't necessarily always cut and dry, nor are they always positive. Yeah, although Casey Quinlan, writing at The Atlantic in October 2013, does think it's getting better. She says, while the representations are still rare and the portrayals of bisexuality tend to be unrealistic, and those portrayals are mostly women because, as Mark Simpson points out, it's more palatable for our culture. Quote, some breakthroughs have taken place in the past few years. And so she cites Nolan Ross on the now defunct Revenge, uh, Callie Torres on Grey's Anatomy, and Kalinda Sharma on The Good Wife. And in talking about Kalinda Sharma, for instance, um, she praises how it's her sort of cold nature in general that leaves leads her to be sort of a love them and leave them type rather than it just being her wild bisexuality that makes her want to have one night stands with whomever. Yeah. And I mean, and I think uh, I used to watch Grey's Anatomy. Used to. I quit it like a bad habit a long time ago. But I did love the character of Callie Torres. She's definitely not portrayed as someone who changes partners on a whim. She's portrayed as a warm and intelligent person who happens to have loved men and happens to have loved women as well. Yeah, it sounds like bisexuality in those contexts isn't being fetishized. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's uh, Shonda Rhimes, too, for you. Well, yeah. 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 I love Shonda. I love Shonda. Oh, man. What a dream stuff. I've never told you guys that would be. Shonda, are you listening? Please, Shonda. Uh. Um, but yeah, so Amy Zimmerman, who we just mentioned, isn't as convinced as Casey Quinlan is that things are getting better. Uh, she writes, our mainstream media reinforces the notion that bisexuality is either a fun, voluntary act of experimentation or a mere myth through two tried and true tactics, misrepresenting and oversimplifying bisexual characters until they're either punchlines or wet dream fodder or simply refusing to portray bisexual characters in the first place. I mean, it it confuses people. People are easily confused. And and I, not knowing anything about anything, I'm sure there are some showrunners out there who are like, well, we don't know how to treat this, or we don't know how to write a good bisexual character. So we'll just either gloss over it, or we'll make them more palatable as that kind of hot and slutty girl character trope. You know, or or we'll just make them gay. Well, I wonder, too, how that would interact with network standards, Mm -hmm. with advertisers who might not be as keen on showing a bisexual man or an authentic bisexual character where it is normalized rather than something that's just seen as, oh, no, this is just a this is a a real ratings grabber for bisexual sweeps week. Mm -hmm. Um, And Zimmerman also cites the Larry King interview with Anna Paquin in which he asks her whether she is a, quote, non-practicing bisexual (laughs) because she is what she married. She's married to the dude, right? From True Blood. Yeah. She married a vampire. Bill. Bill. Yeah. Anna and Bill. And she he seems a little confused when she responds that she's in a monogamous relationship with a man and basically says, listen, Larry, my, my sexual orientation is not the same as my sexual partner. Like your orientation isn't 
who you sleep with. Like that whole that whole thing. Yeah. Essentially. But there's not only erasure of bisexuals happening in the media, on screen, in articles. It's also happening within the LGBT community. You know, we mentioned plenty of stereotypes that both gay and straight people hold of self-identified bisexuals. But what else contributes to LG and possibly T folks dismissing the bees? So, again, citing a 2013 Pew Research survey of LGBT Americans we cited in our last episode, it found that bisexuals are less likely to, quote, view their sexual orientation as important to their overall identity. And so researchers think that perhaps that might contribute to attitudes that bisexuals aren't as invested in the LGBT community. So you have LG and possibly T saying, you know, B, get out of here. You're not really part of the cause. You're like hanging out with your opposite sex partner and everything's gravy for you. I'm so picturing like a schoolhouse rock moment of of big letters, big block cartoon letters, just like yelling at each other, like, get out of here. Can't all the letters get along? Yeah, like the, the uh, LG and T get up from the school lunch table when B tries to sit down with his tray. Anyway, um, kind of on the same note, you know, we talked a lot about the New York Times Magazine article by Benoit Denise Lewis in our first episode. And he talks to a guy who's associated with the American Institute of Bisexuality uh, who identifies as gay for, quote, a host of emotional reasons. For one thing, it simplifies my life. This guy says, this guy that Dennis Lewis talked to says that, yeah, I've, I've been attracted to women. I just, just last week I saw a woman that I felt an attraction for, but I'm, I'm gay and I've identified as gay for decades now. And it was just interesting that that quote and that feeling was framed more in terms of, you know, it's just easier. Kind of what I just posited about TV showrunners about what's just easier to to be one way or the other, to be black or white instead of being in that gray spectrum in the middle. And that was echoed, too, in something that activist and speaker Robin Oaks told Dennis A. Lewis about how she was initially afraid to come out as bi to her lesbian friends in college, saying, quote, they said that bisexuals couldn't be trusted, that they would inevitably leave you for a man. Had I come out as lesbian, I could have been welcomed with open arms, taken to parties, invited to join the softball team, the lesbian red carpet, if you will. But for me to say I was a lesbian would have required that I dismiss all of my previous attractions to men as some sort of false consciousness. So I didn't come out. But it's more than just fear of stereotypes or a lack of trust, as many researchers, including Lisa Diamond, have pointed out. It's almost an issue of credibility and community and that a lot of anti LGBT rights people and a lot of people who are also pushing against same sex marriage have argued that if you can go either any all ways sexually or romantically, then that sort of in their minds dismisses the born this way concept. And a lot of, a lot of advocates have said, no, we need to be able to argue that we are born this way and that we can't choose to choose who we love or who we have sex with, that this is just how we are. And even Lisa Diamond has pointed out 
We need to find a better argument than born this way because she has done so much research into sexual fluidity and has even seen her research picked up by the people who were fighting uh, the breakdown of DOMA a couple years ago, that she's like, we we need to be able to come up with, with better and different arguments. Well, isn't that so interesting, then, that a broader range of sexual attraction and romantic attraction as well, because it's who you want to have sex with, and it's also who you want to form relationships with um, that informs all of this, is seen as... Choice that then is twisted into this idea of, well, you know, it's not a sexual orientation. There's nothing biological about this. These people are simply, you know, picking and choosing <laughs> whomever they want. Um, so it's so, it's highlighted over and over and over again through this whole bisexual erasure conversation about how, I mean, just how this logic is often so twisted and how much we really need to underscore differences between orientation and attraction and gender identity and all of these different things that are going on and often mixed up to argue against bisexuality. And and this is something, too, that's been investigated in academia and on the more theoretical side as well, because in terms of queer theory, Bisexuality has not gotten nearly as much attention in terms of the LGBTQ um, spectrum of things. And there's this particular paper that came out in 2000 that's cited often uh, by law professor Kenji Yoshino called The Epistemic Contract of Bisexual Erasure in the Stanford Law Review. And Caroline, can you can you break down what Yoshino is talking about? Because it's all about this this so-called epistemic contract, which is fancy speak for what? <laughs> well, basically, so epistemic is defined as of or related to knowledge or knowing. Mm. And he defines this so-called epistemic contract as an agreement, essentially, obviously unspoken, uh, unless there are meetings that I haven't been to. <laughs> yeah. Are there, are there straight <laughs> meetings we're not getting invites to? That's totally fine. Um, but it's basically this unspoken agreement between straight people and gay people that bisexuals will be made invisible in order to... Do things such as stabilize sexual orientation, stabilize identity, uh, stabilize the importance of sex as a distinguishing trait in our society and in our community building, thus specifically for gay people in the fight for civil rights. So it sounds like. Uh, there's this, uh, I mean, speaking, you know, kind of symbolically, it's like there's this, uh, th- this binary committee saying, you know what, we <laughs> need the binary. The binary is good for all of us because it organizes things and it's easier for us to conceptualize than a spectrum. Yes, and it's easier for TV show producers. Um, but yeah, so, so, you should know, wrote this paper after having taught classes related to sexual orientation and the law. And he wrote that the view of sexual orientation as a spectrum from exclusive heterosexuality to exclusive homosexuality encourages us to think of that binary 
as stretching like an accordion to accommodate those ever finer gradations of desire. And he says that we must recognize people in the middle, for instance, asexuals and bisexuals, because it's too easy to leave them out of the dialogue when it comes to things like the fight for same-sex marriage or civil rights or, or really anything that could come before a judge. It's super easy to forget all of those people in that gray area in the middle and only talk about things in terms of gay or straight. Yeah, I mean, and, and talking about things that come before a judge, I'm sure parental custody is a, another big one. Um, but there's also this concern, too, that uh, there was a study about in the Journal of Bisexuality in 2012 that when it comes to that accordion that you're talking about, all those individual gradations, that more visibility of all of that and these arguments of a more fluid uh, perspective on sexuality will inadvertently omit bisexuality. Yeah, writing in the Journal of Bisexuality in 2012, Esther Rappaport basically breaks it down by saying that the psychoanalytic view of bisexuality is quite removed from the experiences, the lived everyday, day in and day out experiences of actual bisexual people, but also that researchers blending psychoanalysis and queer theory end up omitting bisexuality in this discussion of sexuality as fluid, because certainly the discussion of sexuality as, as fluid is not a negative but when it omits people who self-identify as bisexual, then that is worth some further investigation. Yeah, and she emphasizes the importance of getting bi-identified researchers' voices heard. Because, I mean, it, it really seems like when it comes to LGBTQ issues, I would say we there, there's still a lot of catching up to do in terms of of the B. Um, especially when we're talking from an academic perspective. And a lot of language has been developing around this as well. We've been mentioning fluidity a lot, and we're going to talk about that the, the tension a little bit between this idea of sexual fluidity and bisexuality when we come right back from a quick break. Sexual fluidity erasing bisexuality. You know, we've cited Lisa Diamond uh, a couple of times already. Uh, she's got some pretty impressive research out there that I encourage anyone to, to Google. Um, but the advocate cites Diamond, who's a psychology and gender studies professor at the University of Utah, in describing the research that's going on today. And they write that there are now several studies that have found that 10 to 14 percent of American women describe themselves as mostly but not completely heterosexual. And six to nine percent of American men who self-identify the same way. And Diamond points out that studies in other countries have found the same general range. And something that Diamond's research partner, Rich Savin Williams, has pointed out, too, is how, especially for the younger people they're researching, bisexuality, quote, doesn't quite capture a lot of what they're feeling. So, for instance, he encountered young men who might say, I'm really attracted to women, but I wouldn't rule out the possibility of a guy, which does remind me of a guy that I dated who described himself as heteroflexible for exactly 
that reason. Um, and Savin Williams studies led him to conclude that, quote, heterosexual, bisexual and gay, lesbian individuals do not constitute the universe of sexual orientation. So maybe by advocates admit fluidity and bisexuality are linked. Yeah, one uh, American Institute of Bisexuality board member told the advocate, quote, I think that fluidity is simply a way to express the gray area that reality really is. I think that fluidity is a good way of talking about bisexuality. Fluidity in reality refers to a range, and I think that's good. And this whole conversation around fluidity and bisexuality and what is the appropriate language reminded me of a New York Times article that I think Diamond also referenced in one of her interviews with gay researchers who have called for an end to using the phrase homosexuality. And this was something that started in the early gay rights movement because homosexuality, that word was pathologized so much in old research, you know, used to describe something that was bad and harmful and something that should be treated and removed. Um, and also the fact that sex is inherent in homosexuality. And so it made all of the focus on gay rights, not about human rights and the well-being of people, but rather about sex and the kind of sex they're having. So there's similarly this question of whether or not bisexuality can't is also misleading in that way of yeah. focusing and refocusing these conversations and scientific studies on sex rather than the people. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it focuses not only on sex because sex is in the word, but also that binary, which because uh, bi is in the word. Yeah, <laughs> we're having fun with words today on stuff <laughs> Mum never told you. And as as Diamond and many other researchers would point out, there's obviously more than just two things going on. There's there's it's bigger than a binary. It is a spectrum. It is fluid. That doesn't discount the fact that bisexual people exist and identify as such. But Diamond has some great research into fluidity and gender. And she published a study called I was wrong exclamation point. Men are pretty darn sexually fluid too exclamation point. And she says she was shocked uh when she realized that men are basically, for the most part, just as sexually fluid as we've always assumed women to be. And writing about this, the New York Times Magazine said she was surprised to find that almost as many men transitioned at some point from a gay identity to a bisexual, queer, or unlabeled one, as did from a bisexual identity to a gay identity. And so it's interesting to read about this sort of, like, you know, we've mentioned an accordion, Kristen, but it's also interesting to look at this research as, like, Almost like moving on an abacus, like all of these little colored dots moving, moving back and forth on this spectrum, because in her research and in and in a lot of other research into sexuality and fluidity and bisexuality, it's like the rarest of the rare to find someone who is 100 percent, quote unquote, pure straight or pure gay. Uh, and it's way more common to find people who are kind of moving back and forth as ending up in sort of this unlabeled territory of like, I sure I was married to a man, 
but now I've, you know, quote unquote, entered bisexuality in dating women. And I'm just going to kind of hang out here now. Well, and we should also note, too, how that the reason why uh, Diamond Diamond's study title is I was wrong. Men are pretty darn sexually fluid, too, is because it's such a new idea, even right now, sitting here in 2015, that that exists among men because of the way that science had approached sort of measuring sexuality. And, and basically the the go-to method of that is to hook up, you know, men's penises to these little sort of like a blood dilation gauges to see how engorged they become mm-hmm. and show them porn. And they show them gay porn, they show them straight porn, and they show them lesbian porn, all kinds of porn. So just watching porns hooked up to uh, penis engorge uh measurement tools that's the scientific term for it anyway and and then show showing how oh well they're either really into gay porn according to how much blood is rushing into their penis right now or they're really into they're watch you know they're watching women in the straight porn and so it's it's been really i mean it's kind of been rudimentary in a way right and but also i mean in addition to all that so many people have said why are we looking at bisexuality or or fluidity uh, from purely uh, penis gauges? Exactly. Or or even the pupil dilation studies of of you know your pupils dilate when you're really attracted to what you're looking at or you're really excited by what you're looking at. Caroline's pupils are huge right now. <laughs> Super as she's huge. Looking at me. Oh my god, <laughs> so attracted. Um, because so many people point out that it, there's more to it. There's more to it than just who you're having sex with or who you want to have sex with, as anyone who's ever been in a relationship with anyone could attest. There are so many more levels of your relationship than just the sexual aspect. Sure, you hope and want to be sexually attracted to your partner, of course, but there's also just knowing and loving and accepting that person. And so a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, I might be, you know, this degree of sexually attracted to men, but I'm also this degree of romantically attracted to women. And the two are never quite mutually exclusive. Well, and I guarantee you that 20 years from now, when all of this research is going to be based on our generation and younger, the data will be completely different because what Robin Oaks and other people have pointed out is that when you talk to younger people, it's not such a big deal. We are far more, this generation is, is far more open and accepting and inquisitive of all of these spectrum labels mm-hmm. and are far more open to this idea of fluidity, whether that means bisexuality for them or pansexuality or a queer identity, whatever it is, um, as opposed to the more rigid minded generations of the past who have really had a hard time seeing beyond Kinsey's sheep and goats. Right. Oh, fluffy. Um, yeah. And I mean, and, and the more that anyone reads about this, talks about this, studies this, the more that the concept of a spectrum is normalized and makes sense. And the more that people our age, younger, even younger than that, future people uh, will start to, to kind of grasp the idea of like, OK, well, this is 
the world does not exist on a binary for anything, that there's so many shades in between, especially for sexuality. I mean, the zygotes get it, Caroline. <laughs> Come on, the zygotes. You know, <laughs> at 11 weeks, they're with it. Super with it. But this is also, too, though, you know, a call for better bisexual representation, the end of biracial, all these things that we've been talking about, because there is no question that these people exist. You know, we we just kind of need to get over our hangups, maybe, about language and the need. It just seems like there's this driving need to put everybody in as few boxes as possible. Like, what? Mm-hmm. why do we need to be in a box? Yeah, I mean, it makes for better, like, closet organization. That's true. See what I did there? I could use more boxes in my house in I, that sense. Yeah, I, I definitely could use some more home organization as well. But anyway, I mean, I think we will get there in terms of maybe not getting over our desire to put people in, in various boxes, but, but maybe more accepting of the fact that the boxes are different shapes and bigger and longer and shorter and whatever. Um you know, as research from people like Lisa Diamond gains traction and as people like the American Institute of Bisexuality help fund more studies and bring attention to these issues, maybe we can get past the point of only literally studying arousal and remember that their attraction, love, sex, all of the stuff is more multifaceted than just uh, the penis meter. Yeah, not focusing so much on the sex of bisexuality. And we really want to hear again from bisexual listeners, queer listeners, pansexual listeners. No, I'm not equating all the same things. I'm just asking for your feedback, all of you listening and, and gay listeners as well. You know what, everybody? Everybody, we want to hear. <laughs> we're inclusive. Your thoughts, all of your inclusive thoughts. Because, I mean, this is, we're, we're clearly at a point of having a, a cultural conversation about this, and I really want to hear the voices out there. So send us your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to the show. Well, Kristen, I have some more letters here for you uh, in reference to our single women and single by choice episodes. I have a letter here from Jody who says, I noticed in your references that there were very few qualitative studies in which women who are single by choice were interviewed for their reasons for being single. As a researcher who believes that in order to really understand people, you need to go straight to the source and get really deep information. I was saddened to hear how much time had been dedicated to describing single women with very few single women actually being interviewed. Talk about mansplaining. I myself am a woman who has chosen to be single largely because I haven't met a man who has the kindness I seek in a partner, lives a similar lifestyle, and who lives in the same city and region. Do I think I'm missing out and not living the life I want to live? I suppose that if I were looking for someone to come in and make my life better, I would be missing out. But my life is already as good as it can get, so I don't need that. I'm looking for someone to join me in my already great life, to share experiences, and to build memories with. Until I find Mr. Wright, I have a number of relationships with men that are very meaningful to me and satisfying. It is frustrating, though, that for women, relationships are defined as either committed, long-term, and married, or invalid. I have always wanted to get married, but being married isn't the most important aspect of my 
my life. So many of the studies you cited, which I don't believe were adequately completed, were based on the assumption that getting married was high on the list of priorities for the ladies and that a woman's life has to shift once marriage occurs. I grew up with parents who pushed me to be independent so that being with a man could be a choice, and I view the values they taught me as a gift. However, I do recognize my ability to choose as a social privilege and acknowledge that not everyone had the upbringing that I had. I don't have children, and because I expect to marry a man, I certainly am not having to battle the legal system to ensure that the family I build remains in place should I become sick or injured. I was surprised that you ladies didn't spend more time talking about the benefits of getting married because it is a very important legal issue for gay couples. Finally, with regards to the social commentary associated with women who wait to get married, my dad and I had quite the come-to-Jesus meeting when he told me he thought I was being too picky and I told him, are you telling me I don't deserve to have exactly what I want in life? Telling women that they are being too picky is insulting and devalues their worth. We ladies are capable of identifying what we want and evaluating men for whether or not they are the right ones for us. We are awesome and deserve exactly what we want. Finally, as a professional woman, my general experience has been that my lady peers have trouble finding men to marry because we can't seem to find men who are equally successful, but who don't want us to put our careers on hold and play back up to their careers. The quote-unquote successful and ideal men my friends and I meet seem to mostly be looking for personal assistance, which does not match what I'm looking for. Single by choice for the women I know is generally the result of not being able to find a man who respects and values our success and commitment to ourselves. We think the unmarried women problem mostly isn't with us. It's with the expectations men have for us should we agree to get married. For many of us, it is second best because we can't get married because we can't find the kind of men we seek. So thank you, Jody. So I've got a letter here from Sharon, and she writes, Your podcast on Single by Choice really got me thinking about my own choices and those of my friends. While I'll admit that I've been paired up for a long time, I met my husband at university. I've always had single girlfriends. I would like to say that I always accepted them for who they were and not their relationship status. But I didn't. I did judge them. I did think, gosh, when is she going to find the right guy? For that, I'm very sorry. I would never think that now. Those girlfriends who either didn't find the right guy or gal know I'm jealous of their freedom. I've been married for 15 years and have two children, and I already know and have voiced it freely. If I ever find myself single again, I have no intention of pursuing further relationships. I love my husband and children, but being on my own sounds pretty darn awesome. I chose married with children. I doubt I would have been content without them. But in a parallel universe, I'm deeply envious of the me that stayed on her own and is happy with that decision. I look forward to a future that doesn't push us all to pair up, get married, and make babies. If that's what you want, great. I did. But would I have if society didn't tell me that I should? I'll never know. Wouldn't it be wonderful if being single or childless was fully supported by society? I believe that will happen eventually. So thanks for sending us your thoughts and experiences, Sharon. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including our sources so that you can learn more about bisexuality and bisexual erasure, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 